person that God blesses is a person who trusts God. The person that God destroys is a person who trusts themselves and connives in order to get their own way. Then Psalms 3 through 5 deal with Absalom's attempt to overthrow the throne of his father David. Absalom is David's third son. Now Psalm 3 tells us about Absalom's planned coup to overthrow the government. And it also tells us how David flees from Jerusalem so he doesn't get killed. And the events in Psalm 3 take place the morning after the coup. And uh, that's why it's called a morning psalm. David's reflecting back on the events of the night before. Psalm 4 takes place the next evening the evening after the coup. And uh, David tells how he is praying and he's trusting God for his welfare and he's sure that God's going to take care of him so he just puts his head down on the pillow and he goes to sleep. Doesn't think about it a second time. And today we come to Psalm 5 and that takes place the next morning. So this is a morning psalm. So you had a morning psalm that took place the day after the coup an evening psalm that took place the night after the coup, and now another morning psalm takes place two days after the coup. And in this psalm, we see that David is convinced that God's on his side and that he's going to keep the throne. Okay? So that's the setup. And uh, what you need to remember is that David writes these psalms after the events have taken place. Now, we don't know if he wrote these events immediately, uh, these psalms immediately after the events took place, or a year or two later, we're just not certain of that. But uh, we know that from the title of Psalm 5, the superscription, it says, to the chief musician, these are his instructions, what he wants done with these words, to the chief musician with flutes. Now, if you have an old King James, you'll see a Hebrew word there. Uh, it simply refers to flutes or piccolos, okay, wind instruments. And it says, a psalm of David. So the lyrics in Psalm 5, David wants to be accompanied by wind instruments. Okay? Now don't forget that the psalms were the hymn book of Israel. People actually sang these psalms as songs. Just like we sing the old rugged cross, or we sing majesty. When they got up in the temple, they had a choir in the temple, like we have a choir in our church. And the choir would sing these songs according to David's instructions. So you'd have a flautist playing while this song was being sung. Now Clayton said that when he normally sings Psalm 23, he has beautiful music in the background, and he did it today without the music. Wouldn't you like to heard it with the music? Well, I'm going to give you the psalm, and I'm just going to explain what it means by no music. Now, Lynn plays a flute. Yeah, she plays a flute. <laughs> I haven't heard her play in 35 years. <laughs> and I suppose she played a flute. Now, she could accompany me. I should have her come up and accompany me. And I would say it verse and then a lyric and you go <laughs> but we will spare you okay now here's what we're going to do let's look at the psalm we're going to see that it opens with a plea okay we're in psalm 5 notice it opens with a plea 
takes place the second morning after the coup. David says to God, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my God and my King. Now I want you to notice that these words are written in the form of Hebrew poetry. In English poetry, we usually have rhymes. Right? Roses are red, violets are blue, you know. And then you finish off with a rhyme. But in Hebrew poetry, they had what was called parallelism. And that meant line two repeated line one only using different words. Same meaning, different words. And that's how the, the Jewish people did their poetry. So what I want you to notice, I want you to notice in line one, it says, give ear to my words. Look at line two, verse two. Give heed. Do you see that? Line one, give ear. Line two, give heed. They mean exactly the same thing. Right? Now, what are we to, what's God to give ear to, and what is God to give heed to? Well, look what David says. In verse 1, give heed to my words. In verse 2, give heed to the voice of my cry. You see that? It means the same thing. Okay, exactly the same thing. So when you read two sentences, they don't mean things differently. They mean exactly the same thing. This is where Bible teachers make terrible mistakes when they interpret the psalm. Or any Hebrew language. Uh, Hebrew books for that matter. Because if you don't understand the literature, you will say line one means what? Oh, God wants, David wants God's attention. And then in verse two, and then he wants God to heed. That doesn't mean that. They both mean exactly the same thing. So to give ear means to, to heed. Now, notice how he describes God in verse one. Lord, give, he says, give heed to my words Oh, Lord. You see that? Now look how he describes the Lord in verse 2. My King and my God. You see that? Lord in verse 1. My King and my God in verse 2. So we know the Lord is God. He's the Creator God. And we also know that He is King. But notice the pronouns there. My king and my God. So this speaks of a personal relationship. David has a relationship with God. With Yahweh. With the Lord. He calls him my God. He calls him my Lord. There are a lot of people who believe in God but God's not their God. He's not their Lord. They don't have a relationship with him. They don't speak to God. They don't have a channel of communication with God. Now, it also tells us this, that while David is a king, he himself has a king. And it's God that's his king. You see that? David is a king, but he has a king. And he sees God as his king. He rules under God. God is the king of heaven and earth. And guess what David is? He's the king of earth. In a sense, David represents God to earth. We as humans live on earth in bodies that we can see. We look at each other. We talk to each other. Can you see God? 
You can't see God, so guess what God does? God has a representative that you can see. And David, as long as he's in the will of God, he speaks for God. He represents God. Jesus was also the king, wasn't he? Wasn't all authority given to Jesus? Yes, he's a king. What is it? What was written over the cross? Jesus Christ. What? King. Jesus represented God. Jesus was God's anointed one. So David, in a sense, speaks on behalf of God to the people. Therefore, to rebel against David, he's in God's will. It's to rebel against God. That's why the scripture says, touch not my anointed. God has anointed David as his representative. To touch David is to strike out against God. Does that make sense to you? Okay, now look at the reason why David expects God to give heed at the end of verse 2. For to you, and there's a lot of emphasis there, it would be reading like this, because to you I will pray. In other words, he's not uh, turning to any other place for answers to this problem. He's only turning one place. He's turning to God. And therefore, he's not trusting himself, he's not trusting numbers, he's not trusting anything else. He's trusting God, and therefore, because he is putting his total reliance on God, he expects God to heed. He expects God to answer his prayer. Now, notice here he says, pray. You hear see that? For to you I pray. Look up at verse 1. Get thee to my words. Look at that. My words. Verse 2. Give thee to my cry. Look at that. Cry. And then at the end of verse 2, prayer, prayer. So what we see is all those are the same. Those words all mean the same. My words, my cry, my prayer all represent the same thing. So, this prayer, in fact, at the end of verse 1, notice, consider my meditation. You see that? Consider my meditation. So look at that. Give ear to my words. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. For to you I will pray. So whether it's out loud or whether it's in the heart meditation, David defines all of this as prayer. God hears the cries of the human heart. You don't have to vocalize your prayers to God. He knows what's in your heart. When you don't even know how to praise you should, what does Jesus say the Holy Spirit does? He takes those groanings that can't even be vocalized and he takes them right up to the Father. And the Father hears the cries of the heart. Aren't you glad? Because there are people who cannot vocalize. God hears their prayers just as well. He hears the meditations of God. Now look at verse 3. My voice you shall hear in the morning. Oh Lord, this is why we call this a morning psalm. Okay? My voice you will hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. Now, while he prays in this case in the morning, in Psalm 4 he prayed in the evening. And God heard that prayer. I want you to think about that. 
Think about how hard it is to get an appointment with the doctor. Think about how hard it is to get an appointment with an attorney. Think about how hard it is to get the air conditioning man to your house if your air conditioning goes out today on a Sunday afternoon. Now, this is the amazing thing. With God, you can go 24-7. Now, if the doctor happens to be your brother, or if the lawyer happens to be your son, or if the air conditioning man happens to be your father, guess what? You can call them anytime and they'll be right there. Because you have a personal relationship with them. That's why David can go to God anytime, 24-7, because he has a personal relationship with God. He sees God as his father. He says, my God. Can you say that? My God. So that's a tremendous thing. Now look at the words that are used at the end of verse 3. In the morning I will direct it to you. I will look up. That word, direct, and the words look up are military terms. And uh, they're very interesting. The word direct means to marshal the troops. To get them together and point them in the directions they go out to battle. And this is what a general does. And then to look up describes the action of a watchman on a tower that after the troops have been directed toward battle, the watchman's up there on the high tower overlooking the battlefield to determine whether the troops were successful or not. Well, David says, I'm directing my prayers to you. And guess what? I'm looking to see if you're going to answer. I'm just waiting to watch and see how you answer these prayers that have been directed toward you. So David is using military language. He's looking for results. He expects results. Now, look at the ground of David's hope. Okay? Verses 4 through 6. This is the reason why he expects God to answer. Look what it says. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Look at that. Here's the reason. See that word for? The word for, the word because, gives you the reason why he expects God to be on his side and not on Absalom's side. Here it is. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful men. Now again, these are parallels. These are Hebrew parallels. And you see that very clearly. Now, let me give you an example. Look at the beginning of verse 4. You're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Okay, that's the first statement. Now look at the second statement. At the end of verse 5. You hate all workers of iniquity. Look at the end of verse 6. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful men. They all mean the same thing. See that? Those are parallelisms. That means they mean basically line one, line two, and line three basically mean the same thing. Now, this is a very, very strong statement. I've dealt with this once before in this class, but I think I need to deal with it again. If you look at the end of verse five, it says, David says to God, you hate 
stop right there. What do you think of that thing about God? God, you hate. Oh, you don't like that statement, do you? Look at it. God, you hate a few workers of iniquity. Look, see? God, you hate all workers of iniquity. You hate a certain class of people. You hate those people who make it their occupation to do evil. They're evil. You know there are evil people in this world? They really are. And God abhors, it says in verse 6. That's a strong word. That's, it means the same thing as hate. I abhor you. That's what that means. I hate you. He abhors the bloodthirsty. These are people who like to shed blood. They get satisfaction out of shedding blood. They're thirsty for blood. They need a drink of blood in order to be satisfied. And God hates or abhors the deceitful man. That means a person whose lifestyle is one of deceit, God. Wait a second. God abhors bloodthirsty? No, it doesn't say that. God abhors or hates deceit? No, it doesn't say that. God abhors the man. Do you see that? God abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful what? Man. Don't say God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. I want you to know that's the worst theology I've ever heard in my life. If you want to know what I hate, I hate bad theology. <laughs> Look at that. End of verse 5. God hates all workers of iniquity. Does that mean God hates the sin and he loves the sinner? I'd like to see you interpret that. So you can't do it. Look over chapter or Psalm 11. Psalm 11. Just show you an example or two of this. And I want to make a statement for, for emphasis. Now look at Psalm 11 and verse 5. Psalm 11 and verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous. So if you're righteous, you, he puts you to a test many times. But, by contrast, the wicked, same word we saw before, the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Not God hating the sin, but loving the sinner. He hates that person. Let me show you one more. I'll show you several more, but I'll show you one more. It's close by, okay? So go to Psalm, uh, Proverbs. Proverbs 6. Now, you may have these marked because I think we may have touched on a few of these once before. <clears throat> but when you get to Proverbs 6, go down to verse 16. 616. Now this is interesting. Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things the Lord he hates. Oh, let's make it seven. Look. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. You think he just hates the hand? Don't think it's the hands, do you? No, look. A heart that devises evil plans. Isn't it just the heart of the person that he hates? 
feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and the person or the one who sows discord among the brethren. God hates those kinds of people. Now we don't like these verses, and so because we don't like these verses, guess what we do? You know, we skip over these verses. Or, we don't skip over the verses, <laughs> then we have to explain them away. If we actually read them, then, well then guess what? Hate can't mean hate. Or, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, it doesn't mean fear, it just means reference. I've never heard fear meaning reference. The word, the Greek word for fear is phobia. Does that sound like reverence to you? <laughs> Guess what? The same word is translated to English, phobia. What is a phobia? Is it reverence? It's fear. So, we don't like these verses, so either we have to skip over them or we have to explain them away. And the reason we have to explain them away is because they don't fit into our theology. See, we all have a theology. And this is why theology, in my opinion, is so dangerous. Because if a verse doesn't fit into your preconceived theology, then you have to explain it away. Okay. So, <clears throat> what happens is that we then interpret Scripture in light of our theology. Well, my theology doesn't allow for a God that hates. Therefore, I have to explain this scripture in light of my theology, and I have to explain it away. We should never impose our theology upon the scripture. We should derive our theology from the scripture. Did you hear that? Never impose your theology on the scripture. Rather, you derive your theology from the scripture. So I have to allow for a God that hates some people. I have to allow for that. Why do you say you have to do that, Street? Because it's not my theology that's inerrant and infallible. It's the scripture that's inerrant and infallible. So that has to be my guide and it has to inform my theology. Not my theology interpreting the scripture. Does that make sense to you? So it's just important that we... I wanted to... Since this verse sort of fell right here in Psalm 5... I thought this was a good time to really say something about it. Okay? So what I want you to do is I want you to think. Okay? Now look at this. I'll show you another parallel. Go back to Psalm 5 and look at verse 4. <clears throat> look at the end of verse 4. Nor shall evil dwell with you. Look at the beginning of verse 5. The boastful shall not stand in your presence. Won't dwell with you. Will not be in your presence. Verse 6, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. So, if you've been with us in Psalm 1 and 2, this is the same language that's used in Psalm 1 and 2. People who stand, people who dwell, uh, it's very similar. So the evil ones will not stand in the presence of God. And uh, they will be destroyed. Same thing that Jesus said. Jesus says... Uh, to the wicked, he says, they will be cast into hell. The wicked shall be cast. 
Depart from me, you workers of. Does that sound like what we just saw? I think we saw that right there. I think it's in verse 5, isn't it? Workers of. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. In the hellfire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. Because you're following him. That's what you get as well. So what we have is we see that God destroys these people. And so the righteous that have a relationship with him, he eats their plea 24-7. And those who are always conniving and have evil plots, and that's their lifestyle, those people get destroyed. Now look at verse 7. But, oh, look, now we're going to have a contract. But, as for me, I will come into your house. See, now look at verse 4. They shall not dwell. The evil shall not dwell with you. Look at verse 7. But for me, see, you see how he's making the contract? Look at verse 5. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. Look at verse 7. But for me, see how he's making the contract? I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Now again, we see the parallels. Look in verse 7. You see the words, I will. You see that? But as for me, I will. Look in verse, into verse 7. In fear of you, I will. You will what? Beginning of verse 7, I'll come into your house. Into verse 7, I will worship toward your holy temple. And I hear he's talking about probably the temple that's uh, in Jerusalem. He's going to go in there and he feels comfortable being in there where God's presence is. All of this, he says, is based, in the middle of verse 7, on your mercy. Notice that. I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. It's based on God's compassion toward us. Uh, so because we don't deserve God to uh, accept us into his presence, uh, we fall far short of God's standard. But you know what God honors? It's one thing that He honors. He honors this in every sinner, every human being. He honors trust. If we'll just say, Lord, I've tried, I have failed, but I'm trusting you for the outcome. He honors that and He welcomes us into His presence. And it's, it's an amazing thing. It's all based on His mercy there, based on His grace. Now He utters a prayer for guidance. Look at verse 8. He says, Lord, he says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Now, again, what we have is we have parallels, and you see this. Uh, look what he asked him to do, first of all, in verse 8. Lead me. Sounds like a shepherd, doesn't it? He asked God to be his guide. Lead me. Lead me where? In righteousness. Help me to do the right thing. I need your help, Lord. Uh, why should he do it? Because my enemies. Uh, I'm capable of, uh, they're using bad tactics. I'm capable of falling into those same tricks. Uh, don't allow me to do it, Lord. My enemies are surrounding me. I ask you to lead me. And then look what I ask you to do. Make your way straight before me. Make the path straight. Sort of sounds like John the Baptist's mission, doesn't it? John the Baptist, and what did he do? He made the way straight for Jesus. He was the forerunner, in a sense. Now, 
What it means here is that David is asking God to make the way straight. Now that means uh, David is traveling in a highway in a sense. This is the picture. And there are rocks in the road. There are obstacles in the road. And you can't stay on that road. You can't stay on the straight path because of the obstacles. So you have to get off the road and go around the big boulder and so on and so forth. What David is asking God do, to do is clear the way for him. Now the obstacles for David are his enemies. They're not boulders, they're his enemies. God is saying, hey Lord, you clear them out. I can't do anything. And guess who he's asking God to do this to? His own son. He says, God, I can't do it on my own. You need to, you lead me, and Lord, you make, you remove the obstacles, you make straight your way before my face. Now here's the reason. Look at verse 9. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Uh, what he's saying here is he does not, he's again, telling God what his enemies are like. Here's why he wants God to side with him and not with the enemies. Why? Look at this. Because there's no fearful faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with the tongue. He's describing what his enemies are like. This is an anatomy of a sinner. Look at this. The anatomy of a sinner. David says, talks about their mouth at the beginning of verse 9, their inward part, that's their heart, their throat, and their tongue. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Romans 3. When he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he, and there's none righteous. There's no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. Each one goes through his own way. And then you know what he does? He comes right over to Psalm 5 and he quotes that. And he says, their, their mouth is an open sepulcher, an open tomb. Only, Paul doesn't stop with the throat and the tongue and the mouth. He goes right down to their feet. And he says, and their feet shed in he says they're rotten from head to toe. From their, from their head and their mouth all the way down to their feet. They're rotten. Now, what David says is they're rotten inside and out. You see what he's saying? Their mouth, look at this. Their, their, their mouth, their throat, their tongue. But then he says their inward parts. They're rotten inside and out. Oh Lord, don't side with these people. They're rotten inside and out. The amazing thing is, at the end of verse 9, they flatter they flatter. But guess what's in their heart? You have to see. see. And God looks in on that heart. So watch out for people who flatter you all the time, but they have some plan. you know. And so he's saying that they're rotten inside and out. If you could just look down in their throat, you would see it's an open tomb. The stench. The flattery is not doesn't smell sweet. If you could get close enough and smell their breath, smell their spiritual breath. The flattery wouldn't smell sweet. It would be a stench. It would be like a rotten corpse. So he says, Lord, don't side with them. You know, side with me. See? And now he prays for them. It's sort of interesting how he prays for them. Okay? It's a negative prayer. <laughs> this is what's so good about it. Look what he said. Pronounce them guilty, O God. 
this is called uh, an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory prayer. There are about seven imprecatory prayers in the Psalms. And uh, an imprecatory prayer is a prayer to praise judgment on people. So here's what he's praying. He's asking God to find them guilty. Look at that. Find them guilty, God. Now the word guilty there is not a great translation. It, the word probably would be to expose them. Pronounce them guilty in the sense that everyone knows they're guilty. Expose them for what they are. See? Show everybody that they're guilty. Right now, even my most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, is siding with Absalom because he thinks he's a good guy. Expose Absalom for what he is. Guilty. Let them fall. Look at that. How, how's that good for a prayer? Would you like somebody to pray that? Let them fall by their own counsels. In other words, Lord, allow Absalom's plans to backfire. Allow uh, what he thinks is going to produce a success. Did that happen? Well, we know that from a couple of weeks ago. That he has this plan to overthrow David and it ends up being his own demise. So expose them, cause them to fall, and then look in verse 10. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. Expulsion. So what you have here is you have exposure, collapse or fall, Sound like the Garden of Eden? That sound like the Garden of Eden? Exposed for what they are? The fall expels them from the garden. It's basically repeated over and over again. And then right at the end, he gives us the reason for all this. Look what he says in verse 10. For they have rebelled against you. Look at that. They have rebelled against you. Now wait a second. I think I thought they were rebelling against David. Ah, that's what David sees. David says, hey, they're rebelling against you. Why is that? Because David is God's earthly representative. And to rebel against David, he's in God's will, is to rebel against God. So uh, David realizes that the rebellion is really against God, and therefore he places the judgment in God's hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So uh, based on this, David can take comfort. And so can we. When people are persecuting us, circumstances get out of our control, we should be able to do what David does. We should be able to, to pray. Prayer is our resource. Okay? Prayer is our recourse. Listen, it's our resource. It's our recourse. Our, you, don't, you don't say, well, here's what I'm going to do. No, you've got another option. Prayer. Don't take the matter in your hands. Just pray. God's given you that resource, and it's your recourse, okay? Now, we have the flip side of the prayer in verse 11. Okay? But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them shout for joy, because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. Now, again, notice the parallels. You just have the threefold parallel. Notice the three lets there in verse 11. 
Why let those? Why let them? Look at the end. Why let those? Do you see those three lets? Three lets? Look at those pronouns. Those, them, those. So David's talking about a group of people that are righteous here. Now, what does he ask God to let those people do? Look at this. Let them rejoice. Beginning of verse 11. Middle of verse 11. Let them shout for what? Joy. There's rejoice. There's joy. Now look at the end of verse 11. Let those also who love your name be what? Joyful. You see that? Three parallels there. Now, where is that? Look at this. In the beginning of verse 11. Let those who rejoice put their trust in you. You see that? In you. Look at the end of verse 11. Be joyful in you. You see this phrase, in you, at the beginning and the end of verse 11. That's the key. We need to be have this intimate relationship with God. And our faith is in God. That's what we are to do. And when we do that, He will defend us. Now what it says right there in the middle of verse 11, let those let them shout for joy because, look, you defend them. You see that? That's why we're to shout for joy. God defends us. You have a choice. You can defend yourself or you can let God defend you. Okay? If you defend yourself and get out of a situation, you'll never know whether it was God that got you out of the situation. Or whether it was your own efforts. So, what David does, this is why he's a man after God's own heart. He just throws it all on God. And he says, God, you protect me. And, but in verse 11, he says, and not only me, all those who are righteous, let them rejoice because you'll, be, you'll protect them as well. So God protects us. He's our sure defense. He's our refuge in times of need. And then look at verse 12. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. And we saw back in Psalm 3 that God is a shield that surrounds the people who trust him. Hey, it's, he's a shield that goes you know, 360 degrees around you. And that's a, if, you're, if you're surrounded by that shield, no one can hurt you. And so it's like the mother hen who you know, puts her wings out over her chicks to protect them. God is our protection. That's what he said. And in verse 12 he says, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. God blesses us. And then verse 12, With your favor you'll surround him with the shore. God protects us. He gives us wholeness. He blesses us with abundant life. Pastor was talking this morning about the white keys and the black keys. You can have a total vanilla life. That's not a blessing. That's a vanilla life. You were there at church, you know what I'm talking about. But if you play the white keys and the black keys, that has a full sound. That's a blessing to hear. And God blesses us with fullness and He protects us entirely. He surrounds us. It's all based on His favor. At the end of verse 12, it says, with favor, based on His grace. We don't deserve it, but He honors our trust. I'll tell you, Christians don't trust God. They trust themselves. They give lip service to God, but they do what they do to get themselves in and out of situations rather than trusting God. We need to trust God to be our counselor. We need to trust God to be our protector. When we do that, we are invincible. 
totally invincible. But that means when we're in God's will, we're not always conniving, like many of men are capable of doing. Women are not like that. <laughs> and it means when we trust it. So the fact that it ends with blessing, Lord bless the righteous, uh, shows us how it goes right back to the foundational psalm, Psalm 1 and 2, where it says, Blessed is the man, blessed is the man. Here's the person that God blesses. And so, in a sense, Psalm 1 and 2 tells us the kind of people God blesses and the kind of people God destroys. That's Psalm 1 and 2. Psalms 3, 4, and 5 give us an example, a real-life example of the people that God blesses and the people that God destroys. Well, Obviously, God left David because David lived to write, write about it, right? And uh, David has survived the coup, and he writes the Psalms, and we have them today, and uh, they are medicine and the balm for our soul. Now, next week, I want to show you something. Okay? In Psalm 6, remember how David can just, in these Psalms, he can lay his head down and go right to sleep? David stopped taking his own advice in Psalm 6. He's no longer trusting God. He's no longer in God's will. And so guess what happens? He's not being the person that God blesses. In fact, I want to show you one verse. He says, look at verse 6. Verse 6. Psalm 6. Psalm 6, verse 6. He says, I am weary with my groaning and all night I make my bed swim. What do you mean by that? I mean, I drench my couch with my tears. I can't even sleep at night. Boy, things have sure changed in one song, haven't they? So what we're going to see is how David gets himself into a dilemma next week and uh, realizing how he's gotten himself into the dilemma, how he plans to get himself out or ask God to rescue him from that situation. That's what we Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to be people after your own heart. Help us to be the kind of people that are called the righteous. People who depend upon your mercy and grace and put their full trust in you. Oh Lord, that's what we want. Help us to learn that we have a supernatural source in you. Uh, which means that no natural means can come against us at any chance of succeeding as long as we're connected to you, our supernatural source. So Lord, help us to realize that. Help us to realize that prayer is the resource that you've given us to uh, stay in touch with you. In Christ's name we pray.